This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. We competed against each other on Jeopardy. Kyle ended up winning seven games. And we've been chatting about the show ever since. Each week we start with analysis of this week's Jeopardy episodes. Then we move into a deep dive on a question or category from one of those episodes. And at the end we have a quiz. And uh, this week was a pretty special week, um, as far as, especially as far as a week of reruns goes. Um, this is their first of four weeks of episodes from the vault. This week we had a hodgepodge of interesting or landmark episodes um, from the very early years of the show. Uh, so we had their very first episode they ever aired. We had their very first episode that, spoiler warning, had a three-way zero tie as the final score, uh, which was their second episode they ever aired. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we had uh, game five of Chuck Forrest, who was a very successful contestant who is known as the originator of the Forest Bounce, where you move around on the board um, rather than proceeding straight down each category until it's done. Then we had Game 5 from uh, Frank Spangenberg's run. He set a huge, uh, for the time, um, record and ended up having to give some of his winnings to charity. Then we had his win from uh, from the 10th anniversary tournament. Good set of games. Yeah, it was. Man, it was weird to see a lot of the, the old sets, and especially with those first two episodes. The mm-hmm. Just the how, I don't know, like loose everything was it felt so <laughs> weird it was weird and the ringing in before the question ended. <laughs> at least so at least at least he finished reading the entire clue before yes. going to the contestant because if it was like you know the the quiz bowl kind of thing where it's like they literally stop when you ring in right oh, that would have been that would have been excruciating mm-hmm. oh man but like yeah, I mean, as we know, and even... It would have uncovered more of those clues. Yeah, maybe. Uh, well, you know, if Alex didn't talk so much, man, he was wordy in those first yeah, couple episodes. Which, I mean, I realize it was also the first couple episodes for him, so he was getting a feel for what, you know, actually how to yeah. run the game. But, mm-hmm. oof, man. Yeah. He's a loquacious gentleman. Yes, his word count um. was high. <laughs> And the contestants walking across the stage freaked me out also. Oh, man. It, there was so much that was, like, taking me back to my childhood, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Remembering mm-hmm. watching it with my mom. Yeah. It's funny because Jeopardy, I feel like it changes incrementally. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Each, each season, they usually make some changes. They make a little change to how the sounds sound. Uh, <laughs> How they lay upon the ear. Yeah. No, they, I mean, you know, they slightly rework the sound package or they, you know, um, make some modifications to the podiums. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, or, like, I think it was our season that they introduced, like, like getting a little bit more of a kind of behind the scenes flavor by having, like, the 
camera show the contestant coordinators helping the contestants to prep before final jeopardy and those little like intercuts between commercials. Yep. Um, you know, there, there are like little changes every season, little changes, but like to just slam back 36 years, uh, (laughs) and, uh, see how it was done. The very first episode, it was wild. It was jarring. I'm glad I was on in the year that I was as opposed to that year. Yeah, Oof. for sure. There's good news about season 30, I guess it'll be 37, right? It'll be 37. Um, that we should also mention, which is that Alex Trebek has hinted that they seem to be getting ready to resume filming. They've made some modifications to the set to make it, you know, mitigate the pandemic risk. Uh, the podiums are going to be six feet apart. That's going to be have, weird to see. It's going to be, it's going to be weird. But yeah, we're going to have Jeopardy, we think, maybe in the fall. We can hope. Yeah. Shall we uh, talk about these yeah. games? Yeah, let's talk about the games. All right. Uh, so on Monday, we had episode number one from September 10th, 1984. Uh, we had the contestants, Frank Sullivan, an advertising copywriter originally from Miami, Florida. Lois Feinstein, a freelance copywriter originally from Plainview, New York. And Greg Hopkins, an energy demonstrator from Waverly, Ohio. Uh, which it was interesting. I noticed a lot of them gave the originally from rather than simply mm-hmm. where they're from. That seems to have gone away at some point, uh, along with many other things. Um, And Alex introduces the game. He talks about what it is, what the players will do, you know, all the things we take for granted, having had this around for the better part of four, you know, nearly four decades. Then they get the categories, lakes and rivers, inventions, animals, foreign cuisine, actors and roles, and number, please. Now, we didn't get to see any of the number please category, or, uh, clues. They didn't get to them. There were uh, seven clues left on the board at the end of this round. Mm-hmm. I also thought it was interesting. I think they've retired this bit of language that Alex warned them that they could get into jeopardy uh, by answering incorrectly and dropping below zero. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think they, they have de-emphasized that sort of that, that language. Yeah. Over the years, it has simply come to be what it is. Because uh, yeah. the original name for the game was uh, What's the Question? Mm-hmm. And then uh, right. Merv Griffin wanted something that spoke a little bit more to the, the risk involved in it. So mm-hmm. they changed the name. Uh, yeah, so Greg starts out in the animals category. I felt that a lot of these clues were pretty gettable, but that also kind of makes sense given that it was the first episode you don't if you're trying to build a, a an audience you know you, you're not going to come out swinging with really hard questions that are like oh right. no one wants to watch this mm-hmm. yeah those audience reactions after like every response oh <laughs> yes I, I, I was like squirming in my seat I was like oh, it's taking up so much time just get to yeah. the next clue mm-hmm. yeah in one of those games, uh, so it was a later game, somebody like shouted out a question from the audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll talk about that. It was in the Yeah, final. we'll get to that. So we find the first Daily Double in the 
lakes and rivers category, it's at the $300 level, which just feels strange coming out of my mouth. Yeah. Oh, three. Um, <laughs> Greg finds it and wagers 800 um, of his 1600. Uh, Lois was at negative 400 at that point and Frank at 600. And he uh, gets an audio clip. Um, Which is weird that it's like the first daily double of the show. Yeah. And it's an audio. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I wonder if they were like more common overall initially. I don't know. The text of the clue is river in this famous song. I, I don't know what the song was. Do you? Uh, song of the Volga Boatman. Uh, okay. So that that's right there in the title. Um, he correctly identifies uh, that it is the Volga River. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. Took me a while to get there because like... The, it, it was just weird at all having an audio daily double because they, they are so rare now. Like usually it's a video nowadays, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a recorded yeah. clip of something like video wise. And that, and that was just like, here's a song. Yeah. He wagering a big $800. Mm-hmm. It's funny to see. I mean, it feels like wager wagers have gotten bigger. I mean, far beyond the, like the doubling of all the dollar values. It feels like, contestants were making wagers in these games that we saw several of the games we saw there were some exceptions um but the wagers were sort of much more in line with the average value of a clue on the board yeah yeah um and now it seems to be kind of accepted like best strat strategic practice to uh to wager much higher big Mm -hmm. much bigger than the than the values of the clues on the board Mm -hmm. Um, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Greg is leading with 3,300. Uh, Lois has 200. Frank is at 700. And we get the double Jeopardy categories, the Bible, 50s TV, national landmarks, weights and measures. We didn't see any of those. They left it. Um, they ran out of time. Notorious and four-letter words. And we ended up with six clues unrevealed by the end of this round. Um, the entire weights and measures category was unused. And then uh, one from Notorious didn't get revealed. As much time as they took in between the clues, Alex read fast. Yeah, he did. He, he had energy. Mm-hmm. Um, some of these clues were not uh, well-pinned like a modern Jeopardy clue would be. Mm -hmm. Um, For instance, I think I saw some other Jeopardy contestant highlight this on the social media. Um, In the Bible at 600, according to the Bible, it wasn't necessarily an apple. (laughs) Now, The answer is literally anything. (laughs) Literally anything that's not an apple that is in the Bible. Yeah. Uh, uh, Greg surmised that they were looking for the forbidden fruit or the fruit of the tree of knowledge. You could make a case for anything else that's in the yeah. Bible that's yeah. not necessarily an apple. <laughs> yeah, there there were a number of ones that like I could definitely understand how the contestants would be frustrated when they get it wrong. When it's like that was not well worded. Yep. But you know, growing pains, I suppose. So we got Daily Double number two in the four-letter words category. It was the fourth pick. It was at the $800 level. Lois found that one. And she wagered 
1,000 of her 1,400. Uh, Greg was at 3,300 and Frank was at 500. And she got the clue. It's the first four-letter word in the Star-Spangled Banner. And she worked it out pretty quickly and got to what? What is what? Mm-hmm. Yep. I appreciated her. I'm going to be daring. Yes. I'm go- <laughs> I'm going to be daring and not bet everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just, it, it, it felt, it, it was, it was quaint, you know, it was mm-hmm. the first episode of Jeopardy ever. Nobody had ever, you know, gone all in with, I, I can't even remember, like, I wonder what is the largest wager anyone's ever made on Jeopardy? Somebody who does like Jeopardy data, find that out for us. Yeah. I mean, my gut is to say it's one of James's bets, but. Probably. Yeah. But maybe not. As far as a, double, or, or a daily double bet. Yeah. Oh, and then we never revealed Daily Double number three, did we? No, it was one of those unplayed clues. Mm-hmm. We will never yeah. know. That's right. At the end of the Double Jeopardy round, first first game of the series, and we have ourselves a lock game. Frank is at 2,500, Lois is at 3,800, and Greg is in a lock position at 8,100. Uh, they get the category Holidays. Man, these early games are just, like I said, loose. Um, <laughs> the clue is the third Monday of January, starting in 1986. Now remember, this was 1984, so this this was a like current event upcoming thing. Oh, I hadn't put that together. Yeah, it hadn't, hadn't right. happened yet. They were not... Uh, they were all ruled correct. Frank wagered everything and wrote, What is Martin Luther King's birthday? Which I would argue is incorrect because his birthday is not the third Monday of January. It is a specific right. date. But they accepted it. Um, mm-hmm. Lois wagered 37 of her 3,800 and also wrote, What is Martin Luther King's birthday? Uh, and they accepted it for Frank, got accepted for her. And uh, Greg wagered 300, a safe bet, and just wrote, what is Martin Luther King? And they accepted it. I like, ugh. <laughs> it's a per- that's a person. Yeah. I, yeah. I, yeah. And I realized this was the first Gotta episode. Got day in there. Yeah. I know this is the first episode. They had nothing to go off of in terms of like what the conventions were and how close mm-hmm. you had to get and whatever. But come on, yeah. Um, but they were all ruled correct. Not really that it mattered because Greg won the game with eighty four hundred. Mm-hmm. Right. And it turns out the uh, this was back when they did consolation prizes instead of cash prizes. Uh, so apparently Lois won a trip to Palm Springs and a set of Skyway luggage, and Frank. <laughs> One his and hers Wimbledon tennis rackets. <laughs> I cannot imagine going out, <laughs> being on Jeopardy, and getting to the end of that experience and being like, here, have some tennis rackets. Mm-hmm. Thanks for coming. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Hope you like tennis. Yeah, right? I mean, I, I believe they chose from a uh, list of options. Oh, okay, um, yeah. Not just like... Yeah, hope you like tennis, because this is what you're getting. <laughs> you have to pay taxes on the cash value of the tennis rackets, so... <laughs> yes, these are $35. Be sure to itemize it. <laughs> so, um, on 
Tuesday, we had the game from Tuesday, September 11, 1984. Um, and uh, this is show number two of Jeopardy. Um, but that is not the, the, the famous, the, that's not just the only reason that it's, uh, that it's noteworthy. Um, this is the one that ends with a three-way zero tie, which would not happen for many more years after that. Uh, do you remember how many years? Uh, Alex said 35. It, it was very 35, recent. 35, yeah. So we have the contestants Paul Schaefer, a registered nurse originally from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Lynn Crawford, a carpenter originally from West Springfield, Massachusetts. And Greg Hopkins, an energy demonstrator from Waverly, Ohio, whose one-day cash winnings total 8400 And the Jeopardy! categories are state capitals, the 40s, homonyms, transportation, country music, and by the numbers. Paul had a rough time in this game. Yeah, he did. He he had a lot of no responses. Um, He also had a lot of, like, ringing in before it seemed like he knew what the question was asking for. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He had a tough time of it. Uh, My wife said it was because Alex, during the interview portion... Made him really self conscious about his car- his his career of that know, would, a registered he, nurse. We love Alex, but come on, Uncle Alex, come on. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. They they read out the you know the names and the jobs and the um, and the cities, and then at the at the interview portion, which they were still kind of figuring out with what their conventions were, he said something like, "Oh, there must have been a mix up, so let's get this straightened out." Right. What? <laughs> Uh, right like if there has in fact been a mix-up you can just go to the first person and say so tell me about what you do for a living right right you can you can do that with tact if the answer is registered nurse he can tell you about that if the answer is carpenter and somehow the cards were wrong he can tell you about that like anyway gender norms moment Mm -hmm. it happens on the Ever? I don't think it's ever happened ever. <laughs> uh, we yeah. got a we got a good uh, audience reaction moment uh, in the transportation category. Uh, the first clue, the one hundred dollar level, was type of auto engine or a tomato cocktail. Greg rang in and then didn't have a response, uh, and they were looking for V eight, which I guess this is the first moment in like in Jeopardy where we understand what the clues can be. Because the audience apparently groaned, and Alex was like, that's how it is. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Um, It also seemed like they were having issues with their signaling system. Like, there Mm -hmm. were a couple of times where where two contestants uh, seemed to be able to ring in at the same time. Like, like it wasn't successfully locking out um, subsequent rings. Yep. So we get the first Daily Double. In the by the numbers category, it's at the $400 level. Greg finds it, and uh, he wagers 400 of his 2100 Lynn was at 700 Paul was at negative 100 So, I don't know. To me, it is like, make a bet, man. Yeah. And he gets the clue, total of Disney's Dalmatians and dwarves. And he correctly gets 108. Mm-hmm. So he adds a whopping 400 to his lead. Yep. 
So at the end of the Jeopardy round, we have Greg in the lead at 3,100. Uh, Lynn is in second place at 1,000, and Paul has 500. And we get the double Jeopardy categories, Wild West, Opera, Sports, Biology, Foreign Phrases, and Religion. Yeah, some uh, real real Jeopardy uh, standards here. Mm-hmm. Opera, Sports, um, Religion, Foreign Phrases. Somebody said um, somewhere on Facebook that initially they were making the, like these, they were, what am I trying to say? Get it together, Emily. That initially they were um, making these category headings, I think as like cards, possibly, or like they, the, that it was a physical thing that would be reused. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the kind of cutesy one-off titles that we see um, in modern Jeopardy got a lot easier once they uh, started doing those, like, you know, using the screen digitally. And that also possibly um, when Ben Stein's money was was influential in in the incorporation of puns into category titles. I don't know. I'm not a game show historian. I just make a podcast. But yeah, I uh, there was there was some chatter among um, Jeopardy nerds about the fact that these categories all seem very very straightforward, and that there's some kind of production stuff behind that and some game show game show history. Yeah, there's a thing in the Wild West category that I thought was interesting that there could two of the clues could have had the same correct response. The two hundred dollar level. One of its newspapers was appropriately appropriately called the Epitaph. Paul got in for that one, and that's Tombstone. And then the eight hundred dollar level, brothers Virgil and Morgan were shot here, but Wyatt Earp emerged unscathed. And what they were obviously looking for was the OK Corral, but that's in Tombstone, right? So you could say Tombstone and mm-hmm. not be wrong, right? That is true. I was irritated by the $600 clue in that uh, category, which was, and this is the clue in its totality, in 650,000 miles, the mail was only lost once. That's not... Lost only once. (laughs) (laughs) There's no, like, like, okay. That's not an answer. Because if I say to you, what is the Pony Express? You wouldn't say to me, in 650,000 miles, the mail was only lost once. That doesn't tell me... A mail delivery system in which... Yeah, that doesn't tell me anything. That's not an answer to a question. Yeah. (laughs) It's really funny. Um, Yeah. uh, So Daily Double number two shows up in the uh, opera category. It's at the $600 level. Uh, Lynn found it. Uh, She loved the opera category. She did very well in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, wagered... she got all of the correct answers that there were. Yeah. That, I mean, there was a triple stumper, and then she got the other four. Yeah. Um, she wagered 1,000 of her 2,400. Greg was at 3,500 at that point, and Paul was at 700. Uh, she got another audio daily double. They played the clip, and then they showed the clue. This aria from Pagliacci gave him... The first million-selling record ever. Uh, and she got it right. That's Enrico Caruso. One of the... I shouldn't say early, but like earlier, I guess, recording stars of opera. Because mm-hmm. obviously opera's been around a long time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Recording, not so much. Right. 
So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Greg is in the lead at 9,500. Lynn has 5,000. Paul is at 1,100. And we get the final jeopardy category, the calendar, which was the previous day. It was holidays. So sticking to a theme. Yep. Uh, and the clue is calendar date with which the 20th century began. Paul, Lynn, and Greg all had the same incorrect response. Um, what is or was January 1st, 1900? And all of them wagered everything. Uh, the right move here for Greg would have been like a $501 wager. Uh, Lynn could have, could have, could, you, you, you can make, you can make a case for Lynn going all in or all but a couple bucks. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm not really sure what Paul should do in this situation. Maybe, maybe at zero. <laughs> bet nothing and hope that everybody else is, uh, does what they foolishly did. bet everything. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, whoops. And, uh, Alex was shaken. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Seemed to be sort of at a loss. Instead, he was at a loss for words. Yeah. Um, they each are going to get consolation prizes. Um, and he says that they will bring in three new players to play the game for the next day. And then somebody shouts from off stage, the answer. To which and he Alex, admonishes them. You mean the question? You mean what is the question? Uh, um, the correct question in this case is, what is January 1st, 1901? Anyone who has lived through the turn of the 21st century has been part of numerous conversations with people being pedantic mm-hmm. about how the first 21st century started on January 1, 2001. So yep. I think we've all got that now. Yep. Centuries begin on the one, decades begin on the zero. Mm-hmm. That is correct. So Greg and Lynn both take home a range and dinnerware, and Paul gets an exercise machine. Cool. Um, cool. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm curious what exercise machine. Yeah. Um, okay. So that brings us to uh, our Wednesday game, which comes from October 4th, 1985. This is Chuck Forrest game number five. And we get the contestants, Linda Altsnauer. A student and actress originally from Los Angeles, California. Susan McGowan, an office automation manager from San Francisco, California. And Chuck Forrest, a student from Grand Blanc, Michigan, whose four-day cash winnings total $60,000 at that point. Uh, In the Jeopardy round, we get the categories Presidential Middle Names, Celebrity Sayings, World War II Trivia, Science, Twelve Letter Words, and Bear Facts. Which immediately took me to the office. My wife had many a good, <laughs> many a good office quote. And then we watched the episode of Jeopardy. We had already watched the office for today. Alex's little intro at the top talked about the forest bounce. We didn't see it that much, though. We didn't see much, and and I don't believe that we ever saw him bounce to. A higher dollar amount, like 
Yeah, to he he continued to work from top to bottom. There was a little bit of moving laterally, like to moving across to different categories, but I think that they were just about all played from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with the with the easier clues being revealed earlier. So yeah, I think that technique has uh, been named for him, but has been taken to a, a pretty different place than where he started it. Yeah. And it's possible he was doing more of it in the games before this. Mm-hmm. You know, in more of the way that we know it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the first Daily Double comes up at the $400 level of 12-letter words. Susan finds it and wagers 400 of her 800. Chuck is at 400 at that point, and Linda is at zero. And she gets the clue... The university choral group whose theme song is the following. Um, and then she got audio also, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Tons of audio uh, daily doubles. Yeah. It was an audio. Uh, so she heard a clip. The lyrics are transcribed here on J Archive. Yes, the magic they're singing of the songs we love so well, etc. Um, she correctly identifies who are the Whiffenpoofs. That's... Um, an acapella group from Yale University. My question was how how are so many of these clues like very gettable and then they throw in nonsense like that? Oh, you don't know the Whiffenproofs? No, because I don't live in the like 20 square miles around that particular college. I, I feel like the Whiffenproofs are like the premier like all, I mean and I say this as someone who has no particular love for Yale University. Um, but like the kind oh, of whatever not. <laughs> um, they're one of the like the, I would say they're the premier, like the best known all male acapella group, or or they were. I don't know. There's been a little bit of an acapella explosion, maybe. But like on the West Wing TV show, like when they when there's like a conceit that like an acapella group is coming to sing like Christmas music for like the president and his family, like the whiff and poofs, I believe is the the group they brought in for that. Like they're, they're a thing, you know? All right. All right. They're okay. I guess Yale has something going for it. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I would say, you know, if you, if you are going to know one college acapella group, whiff and poofs might be the one. All right. Yeah. Fine. <laughs> I will accept that I didn't know something that other people know. Yeah. Um, I guess. <laughs> All right. Yeah. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Chuck is at 4,400. Um, Susan has 2,200. Linda has 800. And we get the double Jeopardy categories, the 50s, Odd Customs, The Bible, Classic Country, Islands, and Fruits and Vegetables. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, I'm going to say this is specifically for one of our listeners uh, in the 50s category at the $200 level. The clue was, developer William J. Levitt built three suburban communities all named this. And that's Levittown. Just a thing in my personal life recently. Uh, made a bunch of jokes about Levittown. Like, okay. earlier this week. So one listener will know that. Uh, we'll find that funny. So, there okay. we go. Okay. Um, this was... The first time I heard heard of Levittown, I oh. believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's those cookie cutter oh. subdivisions. Okay. The beginning, the beginning of suburbia in the United States. Mm-hmm. Like the, 
in the, in the gotcha. post-war boom. We had a Bible category, literally the Bible. Yeah, I thought all of those were pretty straightforward. Although they did have a triple stumper at the $600 level. A uh, king whose reign was so rich that silver was said to have been as common as stones in Jerusalem. That was Solomon, Linda Guest Midas. Not a bad association for like a king and wealth, but not biblical. Right. Um, logical. Yep. The three kings of the... Um, the United Monarchy period are Saul, David, Solomon in that order. Yeah, um, and Solomon yeah. was kind of the one of like decadence and excess. Yes. Also, famously wise. So, so they say. Yeah, <laughs> nothing says wisdom like cutting babies in half. Well, you know, he didn't actually. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I mean, there are times as a parent where it <laughs> seems like the best option. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I love you, kids. A little I, too long I love you, daughters. <laughs> so much. Yep. <clears throat> uh, right. So, Daily Double number two comes in the islands category. Uh, pick number seven. Susan finds this one. And she wagers 400 of her 3,400. Chuck is up at 5,000 and Linda's at 1,000. And she gets the clue, first to claim California gold, said he found it on this island named for St. Catherine. What is that clue asking for? <laughs> the word salad. Yeah. They're asking for the name of the island. Mm-hmm. Not who was the first to claim gold, which could also be equally acceptable given the wording. Uh, yep. But she guesses what's Santa Catalina? Which is just a translation of St. Catherine, and she got it right. Mm-hmm. So there we go. I can never see a jello clue without thinking of Anarchy Garcia. Yeah. He had a jello clue. The, in the fruits and vegetables category, the hospitality fruit, it can keep jello from gelling. That is pineapple. Mm-hmm. You can't put fresh pineapple. Canned pineapple is okay. Something about enzymes. I don't know. Yeah, fresh pineapple is just too, too rambunctious. Can't yeah. be con- con- contained. It hasn't been. The- yeah. Hasn't been tamed, you know. Mm-hmm. Kiwi and papaya, I think, also both keep jello from gelling. Maybe there's other ones, too. Oh, yeah. I think he could tell us. That notoriously vibrant kiwi. Mm-hmm. Daily Double number three comes up in the classic country category at the $600 level. Chuck finds it and wagers 3000 of his 8000 uh, Susan's at 6400 Linda's at 800 That's a wager. Now we're talking. Yeah. And his clue is one of three original members of the Country Music Hall of Fame. He correctly responds, who is Hank Williams Sr. Uh, The other two acceptable answers would have been Jimmy Rogers and Fred Rose. Maybe maybe that information was more commonly known, you know, I guess. 36 years ago, 35 <laughs> years ago, however long it was. Those but. all sound like names. No, Hank Williams I, I knew of. Hank yeah, Williams, no, Hank Williams is the only one I know, yeah. Yeah, the others I was like, sure, okay. Yeah, good on you. But he knew his country music anyway, he did well. Yeah. Uh, so at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Chuck's in a locked position. Uh, he's at 12,000, or not not necessarily locked. It's he's a in a locked high position, 12,800. Susan is at 6,400, exactly half of that. And then Linda is at 1,400. 
This is before the, this changes the wagering strategy. This is before they um, changed the policy about ties. Yeah. I believe at this time, I think if you tied, you then both uh, both people would come back. Yep. Yep. Um, so yeah. then too many people started wagering to tie and they had to change that. Yeah. They get the category business and industry. And the clue, over half of Fortune 500 and 42% of all New York Stock Exchange companies are incorporated in this state. Man, I had no idea. Uh, oh, I knew this one. Did they just have really good taxes for companies? Yeah. Okay. Yes, very, very favorable tax policies for companies is the thing to know here. Okay. Yeah, I, had, I was... My guess was Linda's guess, which is Texas, because I was like, maybe it's a bunch of oil companies and whatever. Mm-hmm. But that was incorrect. So she lost a thousand. Uh, Susan bet everything but a dollar, which to me was like, why? You, mm-hmm. If you bet it all and get it right, you could tie him. Right. But even if you get it right, you're going to be a dollar below if you bet zero. Why would you do that? Uh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, I guess this was Chuck's last game. So he wasn't going to come back even if they did tie. Oh, oh that's, that's fair. That, ooh, I hadn't thought about that. That's an interesting. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that either. Yeah. Anyway, she guessed what is New York. That's incorrect. And she was left with a dollar. Uh, Chuck bet zero and guessed where is Delaware, um, mm-hmm. which we can inform him Delaware is on the eastern seaboard. Anyway, mm-hmm. since he asked, where is it? Um, but yeah. that's correct. And he bet zero and uh, he got himself up to $72,800 for his total five day winnings. Mm-hmm. I have to check out the consolation prizes. Susan took home a package of nine kitchen appliances. Hmm. And Linda got a laundry pair. That, that's a washer-dryer, right? Yeah, I would think so. And and diamond watches. Whoa! Good for her. Yeah, those seem incredibly disproportionate. Anyway, got to pay tax on the value of the watches. That's, that's um. fair. That's fair. It's like, here, <laughs> we're going to give you this box, and now you have to give the government money for it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On Thursday, we had the game that w- originally aired Monday, January 15, 1990. This is the fifth game uh, with Frank Spangenberg. Um, our contestants are Murdoch Martin, a graduate student originally from Moss Point, Mississippi. Barbara Prideau, a teacher from St. Charles, Missouri. And Frank Spangenberg, a police officer from Flushing, New York, whose four-day cash winnings total $71,997. And we get the Jeopardy! categories World Geography, Sports, Four-Letter Words, Famous Families, Furniture, and Firsts. Mm-hmm. Man, Frank is tall. Yeah. <laughs> and also very good at Jeopardy! Mm-hmm. Uh, we do see them starting to get a little cute with the categories carrying over um, from the firsts category in the Jeopardy round to the lasts category in Double Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. So uh, the writing is developing. Yep. I love Jeopardy. <laughs> yep. Uh, we get the first Daily Double at pick number 15. It's in the Famous Families category. Uh, Murdoch found this one, and he wagered... 1,000 of his 1,200. Frank was at 2,100 and Barbara was in the red at negative 100. And he got the clue, Michael Davo, father of Olivia on The Wonder Years, was lead singer of the following group. And we get another audio clue where they play a song. Uh, And that, of course, (laughs) 
<laughs> was Quinn the Eskimo, which I was not expecting to hear that on Jeopardy. Um, <laughs> and of course, I'd forgotten the name of the group who did it anyway. So I was like, well, I'm going to get this wrong. Uh, he guessed what is Mott the Hoople. <laughs> I, is that also a group? I don't know. <laughs> I also don't know. Time, it is. Time yes. to Google. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, good for him pulling a group, uh, but it's Manfred Mann. Yeah. Um, if I can quibble with Jeopardy clues again, um, at the $500 level of four letter words, the clue was the badges Girl Scouts earn are officially worn on this part of the uniform. And Frank correctly responded, Sash, that is an option. I believe in 1990, a vest also was an option. You could have a vest instead of a sash. That was at least that was for certain true in 1993. And I think earlier than that. And vest also is a four letter word. Yeah. They would have had to take it. Mm-hmm. We, we've seen a couple of clues <clears throat> or, or correct responses that have kind of been repeats uh, throughout the week. There were a couple on different different episodes where Hitler was the correct response. Mm-hmm. Um, the Today we're seeing one about the Marciano brothers and jeans, uh, which I think will come up again in the next, in Friday's episode. Mm, right. Uh, I think so. Yeah. And uh, there, there were a couple of other instances too, to see, to see these, uh, you know, episodes from different years having the same correct responses, mm-hmm. simply reinforcing that uh, Jeopardy has its, has its ruts. Yep. Uh, so, at the end of the Jeopardy round, going into double Jeopardy, Frank is in the lead at 3,700, Barbara is still at negative 100, and Murdoch is at 800. And they get the double Jeopardy categories, the Old West, Education, Saints, Anatomy, Music, and Lasts. Mm-hmm. And Murdoch starts at the $400 level in Saints. Ooh. That saucy boy. Yes. Oh, the audience likes it when you play the categories from the top to the bottom. Yes, don't you know that, Murdoch? <laughs> I, I didn't recognize uh, the $600 saint's clue until they revealed the response. Brewer's Dictionary quotes this saint as having said, Love me, love my dog. Oh. That's St. Bernard. Mm-hmm. I sort of forget that he's an actual saint and yeah, not just not a just dog, a dog breed. breed. Yeah. yeah, the patron saint of slobber, I believe, is the, <laughs> what, he, what he covers. Yeah, we get daily double number two in the old west category at the eight hundred dollar level. Frank finds it, wagers four thousand of his seven thousand seven hundred. Uh, Murdoch is at fourteen hundred. Barbara is at negative three hundred. And he gets the clue. In 1849, the army took over Fort Laramie, Wyoming to protect the wagon trains on this trail. And he knows that's the Oregon Trail. That's right. Oregon Trail. Um, yeah. He wagered 4000 A good bet. Yeah. He's going for broke. Mm-hmm. Wants to set those records. Yeah. With that mustache, man. Oof. That's, yes. That's a, that is a powerful mustache. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, Frank also finds Daily Double number three. It's also at the $800 level. It's in the education category. And uh, he wagered 7000 uh, He was firmly in the lead at that point. He was at 13300 Barbara was at 500 and Murdoch was at 3200 So he had a lot of wiggle room. Uh, and he, he wagered 7000 and Alex couldn't handle it. 
he had a very strong reaction to it. Now, now I, I imagine nowadays he'd be like, for 7,000. And just like go, go on. Yeah. And uh, he gets the clue. In 1896, the Supreme Court used this oft-quoted phrase to describe acceptable segregation. Uh, and Frank knows that that is separate but equal. Mm-hmm. Um, and before that, Alex had reminded us that Frank was a former teacher before he became a police officer. Mm-hmm. So kind of justify his large wager in the education category. Right, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Frank has a lot game with 20,500 to Murdoch's 5,200 and Barbara's 500. That's a lot. Second place is locked too. Mm -hmm. Um, They get the category U S presidents and the clue of the first seven presidents. Only these two were not reelected. Barbara has wagered 350 and correctly responds, who are Adams and John Quincy Adams? Murdoch has wagered 200, but responds, who are Madison and John Adams? Um, Frank has the correct response with, uh, who are J. Adams and J.Q. Adams, and has wagered 10,100. So he sets a new record. He can only take home 75,000, so he has to give the remaining 27,597 to a charity of his choice. He chose the Gift of Love Hospice in New York City. Nowadays, that is a, a quaint rule. Yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, cool that, that like they get to give it to charity. It's not just like, you can't win it, we keep it. Yeah. So <laughs> yes. That would have, yeah. have been a real bummer. Um, yeah, that's good. I wonder if they would have accepted if you just put, who are Adams? because i mean because it's not like you're clearly defining that it's multiple right right it's technically correct yeah which is the best kind of correct indeed frank you know when you know sets records and wins all this money and gives a bunch to charity barbara goes home with a casablanca ceiling fan and murdoch gets a uh, six-piece bedroom suite so like not bad not bad honestly at the Nowadays, a six-piece bedroom suite might be worth more than $2,000. Yeah. Not bad for second place. But you, like we say, you still have to pay taxes on it, so yeah. you're still losing money. All right, uh, so this brings us to the last game of the week. This is from the 10th anniversary tournament. This is the final game of the finals. So it's uh, game number two. Uh, and we have the contestants Leslie Freights, a Spanish teacher from Hayward, California. Tom Nosek, an engineer from Torrance, California, and Frank Spangenberg, a transit cop from Douglaston, New York. Uh, and in the previous day, Leslie had uh, wa- had gathered $100, Frank had gathered $600, and Tom had gathered 13600 So he was firmly in control going into game two. Mm-hmm. And they get the Jeopardy categories science, sports, highways and byways, 1500 Annual events and starts with W H. <laughs> Frank had fun with that category. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I think it started with him sort of emphasizing the what mm-hmm. of uh, of the correct responses, and then he started calling it starts with what. That's right. Was good. Was fun. Uh, they cleared the boards, which was cool. Yeah. Frank moves fast, and these other champions did as well. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Alex had had a few years to really find his groove also. Yeah, like literally 10 years. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, 
less audience reaction too. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Much more mm-hmm. the game that we know and love. Mm-hmm. Yes, this felt much more familiar. Um, we get the first daily double at the four hundred dollar level of fifteen hundred. Leslie finds it and wagers five hundred. Uh, she has three hundred at that point. Frank and Tom are both at zero. She gets the clue. This most famous morality play dates to around fifteen hundred. Um, and she correctly responds, what is every man? I didn't actually know that. I didn't either. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know for like question writing, it seems strange or spurious to make a claim that it is this, the most famous morality play. Cause like, how do you mm-hmm. measure that? Yeah. Like, how do you measure what is most famous? Right. So, but she knew it. So, you know, whatever it, it worked. Yeah. Yep. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Frank is in the lead with 2,900. Leslie is in second place with 2,100. Tom has 1,600, and we get the Double Jeopardy categories UN Secretaries General, Fashion, Philosophy, Literary Characters, World Facts, and Word Origins. Mm-hmm. I like the Word Origins category. That was yeah. fun. I learned some stuff. Like where akimbo comes from. Mm-hmm. Yep. Middle English phrase for this position with hands on hips and elbows bent out was enkinibu. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I didn't know that either. We And some of my favorite names in the history of humanity comes from the UN Secretary's General category. Mm-hmm. Like the $600 clue, Boutros Boutros Ghali served as this nat- nation's Minister of State for Foreign Affairs from 1977 to 1991. That's Egypt. Uh, mm-hmm. If I had more courage, I would have named one of my children Boutros Boutros. <laughs> and then the $800 clue, he served as headmaster of the National High School in his hometown of Pontana, Burma. And that's Utant. Mm-hmm. Secretary generals just have like, sec- sorry, secretaries general. They always have cool names. Yeah. So the the um, the second daily double actually is the first pick of the round. And it's in that category at the $1,000 level. Tom jumped down to the bottom, playing that James Holzhauer game, clearly. Uh, must be inspired yeah, by Yeah, must have been. I'm surprised Alex didn't say that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he wagered 1,000 of his 1,600. Uh, we just went over the, the, the scores, so I don't need to do it again. He gets the clue. He headed Norway's delegation to the 1945 UN conference in San Francisco be- before becoming Secretary General. Tom knew that. That was Trigvali, who I have never heard of before this. So, Yeah. Uh, we get Daily Double number three in the World Facts category at the $600 level. Leslie finds it and wagers $2,700 of her $10,300. Um, Frank has $7,500 at that point, and Tom has $3,600. That would take her. So that's she's she's looking to keep a little bit of a lead, even if she's wrong. Mm-hmm. She gets the clue: the imposing ruins of Angkor Thom Temple complex, built around 1200, are in this country, and she knows that is Cambodia. Mm-hmm. So uh, at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Frank is at 8100. Tom is at 4000. He really. Uh, Tom flatlined in double jeopardy. He just didn't seem like he could get in. Leslie was on the buzzer. Yeah. 
Leslie was really mm-hmm. on the buzzer. Uh, and she's yeah. in the lead at 13,000. Uh, mm-hmm. And they get the category Women Playwrights. And the clue is one of three women who won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama in the 1980s. Uh, Tom bet it all, which I think was a smart wager. Going into Final Jeopardy, he had a significant lead from yesterday. Mm-hmm. So, but not enough to necessarily like lock anything out if he bet zero. So I think it was a I think it was a fine bet. Uh, he guessed who is Hellman, but that is incorrect. Uh, Frank wagered all of it. And given that he only had 600 from the day before, I think that's absolutely the right bet. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he got it correct with uh, who is Wendy Wasserstein. And Leslie guessed who is Abramowitz uh, and wagered 8601, which would have been uh, a dollar above um, Tom's total winnings if he had gotten it right. Uh, but she got mm-hmm. it wrong. Uh, the correct yeah. options were Beth Henley for The Crimes of the Heart, Marsha Norman for Night Mother, and Wendy, Wendy Wasserstein for The Heidi Chronicles. Right. And a week ago, I would have thought, what does Who is Abramowitz mean? Where did that come from? Having played Trivial Pursuit last week, mm-hmm. uh, we had that question about the comedian who wrote something about Heidi Abramowitz. Um, mm-hmm. That was Joan Rivers. So she clearly got to the Heidi Chronicles and then somehow made a Heidi Abramowitz yep. connection. Yeah. So that's that's where that came from for her. It was fun to be able to kind of trace the connections, although they were not. They Ultimately didn't get her to the right answer. Yeah. yeah. Still pretty cool. So yeah, so Frank ended up winning that, uh, which for that tournament, what they did was they added 25000 to whatever the final score was for the winner. Um, mm-hmm. So he ended up with uh, 41,800. Tom got to keep his 13,600. And then Leslie in third place was uh, guaranteed 7,500. So I wonder if Tom was, or if second place was like guaranteed 10,000 or their winnings. Yeah. So. Or, or maybe 12,500 were their winnings or whatever. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that that is that week of old school Jeopardy. Yeah. It was something. It was something. Um, it was it was refreshing. I it, it was I, I feel like I've had like a Jeopardy history course now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Next week we're going to be doing highlights from uh, Celebrity Jeopardy, so that'll be a different kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It will be a different kind of fun. <laughs> maybe slightly more shame than I totally intended. Um, no, no, no. It's only only come from me. So, like some of the celebrity Jeopardy contestants, like were are I remember being like very on it, and then some very not on it. Mm. But you know what? That's not what that yes. that's not what those weeks were about. So, right. All right. It's it's been a few weeks since we've done our normal our normal format, but uh, you know things are still happening in our world and in our country. There are still ways that you can help your communities uh, and the people in them. Um, so once again, we have a Patreon if you want to check it out. Uh, the videos from our Trivial Pursuit games are up in there uh, for patrons. If that's something you're interested in, you could check that out. Uh, but if you have to choose where you're going to send your money, 
again, we want you to uh, do a bit of research for yourself. Find uh, something in your community or in our country that you feel is worthwhile to uh, support either financially or with your time or simply with advocacy. Just somehow helping mm-hmm. out. Uh, we highlight Community Justice Exchange. They have a lot of resources for uh, nationwide and, and community options, as well as BlackLivesMatter.com, uh, which can also guide you to local resources. So find a way to connect that works for you and uh, do your part. And we'll do ours. Yeah. Well, yes. So, Emily, what do you think I'm doing my deep dive on? Um, are we talking about Alfred Nobel? We are not talking about Alfred Nobel. Are we? You know, he gets about- enough attention, okay? <laughs> he does get a lot of attention. Are we talking about the La Scala Opera House? Oh my God. Yes. Yay! <laughs> it's like four in a row. <laughs> Maybe three in a row. I don't, oh, yes, we're talking about La Scala. Yay. Um, All right. Cool. I, I just, I purposely didn't talk about it. I was hoping you would miss it. Do you want to hear my three other guesses that I was choosing among? If I, sure. If that one wasn't correct. Sure. I was also going to guess about Marconi Radio or the first Olympics or the Navy ice cream ship. The Navy ice cream ship actually would be really interesting, but I missed that in like going through the the archives um, yeah. to like look at what I was going to talk about. Yes, the Navy ice cream ship. Yeah, you got to keep morale up. Yeah. It's a worthwhile investment to keep. You know, keep your keep your your sailors happy and your soldiers happy. Anyway, yeah, we're talking about uh, La Scala. This is from the Tuesday game uh, in the opera category. It was the one clue that uh, Lynn did not get. It was the thousand dollar clue. Uh, Nineteen seventy six was also the bicentennial of this famed Milan opera house, and that is La Scala. Uh, this is as much for me as for anyone else who is listening. If you hear Milan Opera House, the answer is La Scala, uh, which mm-hmm. I will uh, talk about later, I guess. We're going to talk a little bit about La Scala. And actually, I mean, there's there's like, you could spend a lot of time talking about it if you want. But I honestly did not come a lot of come across a lot of like, interesting trivia about it. And really, the history of it is is really more wrapped up in the productions and the people. So La Scala itself, I'm not going to talk a whole bunch about. I'm actually going to talk probably equally as much time about a couple of famous people who are associated with La Scala as well. But we'll start with it. So La Scala, which is an abbreviation of the official name Teatro alla Scala. It's an opera house. It's in Milan, Italy. And it was inaugurated on August 3rd, 1778 even though uh, construction and planning was begun in 1776. So the Jeopardy clue is not entirely accurate, given that its inauguration was not actually until 1778, but uh, close enough. Again, this was, you know, episode number two. They were playing fast and loose with everything. Um, And its premiere performance was... Antonio Salieri's Europa Reconoscuta. Uh, it is <clears throat> widely considered one of Europe's uh, most notable opera houses and uh, opera houses in the world. Uh, it is also considered one of the leading uh, ballet theaters in the world. It's home to the La Scala Theater Chorus, La Scala Theater Ballet, and La Scala Theater Orchestra, as well as uh, the associated school, La Scala Theater Academy, which offers training in the uh, 
in music, dance, stagecraft, stage management, all of the things that La Scala does. There is also a theater museum uh, as part of La Scala. So they start their season on December 7th, which is St. Ambrose's Day, which is uh, St. Ambrose is Milan's patron saint. And all performances must end before midnight. And longer operas start earlier in the evening when, when required. The opera house has a gallery above its boxes where the less wealthy can watch the performance. And um, there is a tradition of the gallery being filled with very critical aficionados who are known as the logianisti. Um, and they very quickly and loudly make clear their opinion of the performers. In fact, uh, in 2006, tenor Roberto Alagna left the stage after being booed during a performance of Aida, and his understudy had to replace him mid-scene without changing into a costume, <laughs> and Alagna did not return to the production. So, like, yeah. The, this gallery audience broke this man mid-performance, which to me is like, not only as, you know, a, a an amateur performer, I'm like, oh gosh, my heart just goes out to him just in general, but also like, as an audience member, I don't, that just, ugh. Yeah. Maybe I'm being pretentious, but like, ugh, that's not, you. that's not your right as a, mm-hmm. as an audience, uh, anyway. So La Scala came to be because a fire dis- destroyed the Teatro Regio Ducale on the 25th of February, 1776, after a carnival gala. Uh, and that was the original uh, theater house, or opera house and theater in Milan. And after that, a group of wealthy Milanese uh, wrote to the Archduke Ferdinand of Austria Esta, which at the time... The Austrian Empire was in control of that region, uh, and they asked for a new theater and a provisional one to be used while building the permanent one. The architect Giuseppe Piermarini produced an ad- original design, but it was rejected by the local count, uh, Count Fermian, who is the governor of Austrian uh, of that of that region. Uh, a second plan was then accepted in 1776 by the Empress Maria Theresa. And the new theater was built on the former location of the Church of Santa Maria alla Scala, which is where the theater gets its name. Uh, at that time, the church was deconsecrated and demolished. And then they built uh, La Scala in its place. Mm-hmm. Uh, they covered the expenses by selling boxes uh, to you know wealthy Milanese and others. And it quickly became like the primary meeting place for noble and wealthy Milanese people. Uh, the main floor had no chairs, and the spectator- spectators watched the show standing up. The orchestra was in full sight. Uh, the pit for the orchestra was not built until, I believe, 1907. And uh, La Scala was, as with most theaters of the time, also a casino with gamblers sitting in the foyer. Um, hmm. the, uh, the foyer also not only being a casino, but then also became just kind of a, a place for anything to be done. Uh, any sort of transaction. It, it was noted that uh, during a performance of Otto Nikolai's Templario, things such as horse dealing and stock jobbing uh, carried into the pit so far that uh, they could be heard during the performance and kind of ruined it. Uh, it was originally illuminated with oil lamps, and then to prevent the risk of fire, several rooms were filled with 
hundreds of water buckets. And eventually they, they were replaced by gas lamps, which were obviously replaced by electricity. Uh, the original structure was renovated in 1907 when it was given its current layout. Uh, it was damaged in 1943 uh, by bombing and was reopened in 1946 with the return of one of the people I'm going to be talking about, Arturo Toscanini. It hosted the first productions of many famous operas, uh, and it had a special relationship with Giuseppe Verdi, who is the other person that I will be talking about. However, they had some, they had a falling out for some time. It underwent major renovations from 2002 to 2004. There were some concerns about the, uh, original kind of aesthetic being preserved during those renovations. However, the opera company was satisfied with the way that it turned out. Seats now include monitors for electronic, the electronic libretto system, which, uh, is, if you are, if you've never been to an opera, it's really helpful to have a translation of the libretto being shown to you. The libretto being the, mm-hmm. the words. Yeah. Cause even in Eng- even, even operas in English, it's extremely difficult to understand what they're saying. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it, it's super helpful. So that's kind of the quick and dirty history of the house. Its principal conductors included many people who, in the classical world, we would know, including Tullio Serafin, Claudio Abado, Ricardo Muti, who uh, I think is still the music director of the Chicago Symphony, and probably the most well-known of their conductors, Arturo Toscanini, who had two stints at the at La Scala from 1898 to 1908, and then from 1921 to 1929. Uh, and like like I said, they premiered a great number of <clears throat> famous works, uh, including operas by Rossini, Meyerbeer, Bellini, Donizetti, um, a couple by Puccini, uh, and even, even works by a composer named Karlheinz Stockhausen, who uh, is was one of the more uh, modern uh, avant-garde composers of the mid-20th century, I guess into the late 20th century. Um, if you've never heard anything by Stockhausen, just check it out. Be prepared to think, like, is this music? When you first listen to it. Uh, but it's it's worth worth listening to. So that's La Scala. It's an opera house in Milan. Very, uh, very influential. Very renowned. So I'm going to talk... A little bit about Arturo Toscanini, and then a little bit about Giuseppe Verdi. Uh, Toscanini was best known as a conductor, although uh, earlier in his career he was a a fairly accomplished uh, cellist. He is most famous for being the conductor of La Scala, as well as the New York Philharmonic. And then uh, later on in his career, he was the music director of the NBC Symphony Orchestra, which made him a household name in the United States. Mm-hmm. He also had eidetic memory, which helped him as a conductor. He could memorize scores and thus not need to look at them to have them in his memory. Uh, he was born in Parma and won a scholarship to the local music conservatory where he studied the cello. He went on tour with uh, the orchestra of an opera company, and they were in South America in 1886, and they were presenting Aida, which is a Verdi opera, in Rio de Janeiro, uh, when the locally hired conductor called it quits. And Toscanini was persuaded to take up the baton and lead a performance completely from memory, basically at the last minute. Uh, there was a lot of chaos before the performance was supposed to go on, and they were like, can you do this? And he was like, sure. 
and he did it and he was very successful and that uh, kind of jump-started his uh, conducting career. And like I said, he went to La Scala from uh, 1898 to 1908. In 1908, he joined the, uh, he went to the uh, New York Metropolitan Opera and uh, then later on joined up with the New York Philharmonic and had a very obviously successful career in the United States and in Europe. Uh, in 1919, Toscanini unsuccessfully ran as a fascist parliamentary candidate in Milan, and he was lauded by Mussolini as the greatest conductor in the world. So, interesting choices, but by 1922, he uh, had become disillusioned with fascism and repeatedly defied Mussolini's wishes. And so he escaped from Italy and came to the United States at the outbreak of World War II. And after World War II, uh, he took over the conducting, like I said, of the NBC Symphony Orchestra, which uh, he used as a way to bring, to create a number of high quality recordings of the classics and more modern classics, uh, as well as live performances to the American public to kind of like foster a love for classical music. Mm -hmm. I'll leave it at that for Toscanini. That's kind of what you need to know. Giuseppe Verdi is probably the most uh, notably associated composer with La Scala. There's a lot of politics that uh, became read into Giuseppe Verdi's uh, compositions, but it's questionable as to whether that was his intention when he started, uh, but I'll, I'll get to that. He was born to kind of middle-class parents, which is not the image he tried to foster later on in life. He, he, he kind of presented himself as coming from, you know, real like peasant roots and, and mm. you know, being a real salt of the earth kind of person as his fame grew. Uh, but that's not necessarily true. His, his parents, especially his father, like uh, provided for him and, and fostered his love of music and his education therein. And he, uh, he worked some jobs in in his hometown and elsewhere in Italy as a young man working in churches and uh, secular positions as uh, music teachers and other things. Uh, he was sponsored by, by one of the directors of the Philharmonic Society, Antonio Barezzi, who was actually a wholesale grocer and distiller. Uh, so he was not a musician himself, but he sponsored musicians that he appreciated uh, and Verdi was one of them. In 1835, Verdi uh, came to Milan, and he became the director of the Busetto School there with a three-year contract. He married his wife, Margarita, in May of 36, and in 1837, they gave birth to their first child, and then their second child in 1838, but both children died young, which kind of hit him pretty hard. Mm-hmm. In 1837, he asked for assistance to stage his first opera in Milan, and uh, originally that was called Oberto. Uh, it received a respectable 13 performances at La Scala, and after that, the impresario Bartolomeo Morelli offered him a contract for three more operas. While he was working on his second opera, his wife Margarita died of encephalitis. That was at age 26, uh, so very young he lost his whole family. The opera he was working on, Un Giorno de Regno, which was a comedy, uh, it was a flop. It only got one performance, and after that, Verdi vowed never to compose music again. But he was convinced to write a new opera a little while later. Uh, and that next opera was is, is the opera that's called Nabucco, 
Originally, it was titled, titled Nebuchadnezzar, and it, this is one of his most famous works, uh, especially into the 20th century and into the 21st century. It's getting more recognition uh, and might be one of his most performed uh, works of all time. Uh, Nabucco underpinned his success for the basically the rest of his time composing in Italy. Uh, it got a revival in 1842 and was put on for an unprecedented and unequaled 57 performances at La Scala. So no other no other opera has been performed as much there as Nabucco. And in 1848, it it had spread to New York and. Buenos Aires and Vienna, it, and his works were widely uh, disseminated. From 1842 to 1849, he wrote a lot of music, 20 operas in that in that period of time. Um, and he actually complained that since Nabucco, you may say, I have never had one hour of peace, 16 years in the galleys, which like, I love writing music, but I can see how uh, I, I can kind of understand how having that kind of time crunch and that, that kind of like constant need to produce can be grating. So he wrote a number of operas, like I mentioned, some of his well-known ones like Attila and Macbeth. He also, during this time, met Giuseppina Strapponi and began a relationship with her. They were unmarried for a long time, which caused some stress with his family and other people as well. Eventually, they did get married but they did not have children together, at least no legitimate children that were uh, documented. His fame grew throughout those years into the 1850s. Uh, he became even better known in Italy and elsewhere. Uh, during the 1850s, he wrote Il Travatore and La Traviata, which are perhaps some of his better known operas now, as well as Rigoletto. Rigoletto caused some problems for him. Uh, during this time, the censors uh, became more more of a roadblock for him as, as he composed. For instance, Rigoletto is, is a story about um, a court jester who gets into a bad situation with the duke that he is that he serves and his daughter as well. It's a tale of love and revenge, and uh, Rigoletto is supposed to be a hunchback, and the the censors didn't didn't like that they took that part out and they also didn't like the idea of like rigoletto talking about murdering royals and all of that and uh, he got really really worked up about it but he wouldn't he wouldn't budge so one of the things he said was like <clears throat> i see the hero has been made no longer ugly and hunchbacked why a singing hunchback why not i think it's splendid to show this character as outwardly deformed and ridiculous and inwardly passionate and full of love I chose the subject for these very qualities. If they are removed, I can no longer set it to music. <laughs> he also had the fame and the clout to kind of like put his foot down and, and make it that way. In the years leading up to 1860, he wrote even more operas, uh, including Aida. Uh, but his his output slowed down significantly compared to before. He traveled down around Italy with Straponi and... During this time, he became much more involved in the politics of Italy. So there was a movement called the uh, Risorgimento, which was the unification movement in Italy. <clears throat> like I mentioned earlier, parts of Italy had been under control of the Austrian Empire, and other parts of Italy were under control at different times of the French Empire and Spain and 
different European powers, as well as being individual city-states or small republics, things like that. During the 19th century, there was a big push for Italian unification and uh, a single Italian republic. So it was during this time that Verdi became kind of a, a figurehead, not necessarily because he did a lot of actual things for it, but he became kind of a symbol that the uh, the revolutionaries and the uh, the unification supporters looked to and kind of pointed to as like, he is Italian. The things he writes are Italian and we can rally around that. Uh, and actually the, the like cry Viva Verdi was a common one for the revolutionaries. Uh, in 1859, he was elected as a member of the new provincial council and was appointed to head a group of five uh, who would meet with the potential king. And he brought a lot of like fame and attention to that movement. Uh, in 1874, he was appointed a member of the Italian Senate, but he didn't do anything with it. <laughs> he, he did not participate. <laughs> After 1860, uh, he again his writing slowed down, and it was during this time that he had a uh, he had a falling out with La Scala. He said that they corrupted his music, and basically because there was a disagreement about how things would be staged. But toward the end of his life, he came back. He came back with Atello and Falstaff, which was his last mm-hmm. opera. Like I mentioned earlier, um, he was like a symbol for the Italian unification movement. Uh, and so a lot of his earlier works were, uh, at the time especially, pointed to as saying, these are, you know, like Risorgimento works. These are clearly stating, you know, the Italian identity and that kind of thing. But none of the documentation of the time when those actually came out suggests that that is actually what those stories were or what the music was for or anything like that. Later on, as he became more involved, yes, he wrote some things that were clearly nationalistic and that kind of thing. But the amount of nationalism in his early works is questionable at best. So there we go. That's that's Verdi. And La Scala, and Italian unification. So, mm-hmm. are you ready for a quiz? I am ready for a quiz. Okay. This this quiz, uh, it's kind of all a- around what, we, what I talked about. So, question okay. one. Like I mentioned, Viva Verdi was a common nationalist slogan of the Risorgimento. However, Verdi, in that saying, was actually an acronym, which stood for the name of a person, followed by... Re d'Italia, which means King of Italy. Who was that man? Oh, I don't think I know. I don't know. Okay. Uh, his initials are V-E, if that helps, given the first part of their should, But I don't know if it does. Uh, that would be Victor Emmanuel, or Vittorio Emmanuel, King of Italy. Ah, gotcha. Yes, oh, of course. Don't worry, I think that's the hardest one. <laughs> that's okay. why I started with it. Uh, but yeah, Viva Verdi was Viva Vittorio Emanuel, Rey d'Italia, which was a, a rallying cry for a lot of the... You could call them terrorists, I guess. <laughs> um, but they, you know, the Carbonaris who actively fought against the uh, Austrian Empire, including Giuseppe Garibaldi, who I think was a Learned League question recently. Could be wrong. Uh, all right, question two. Uh, Rigoletto, like I mentioned, is a tragic tale of love and revenge. It's also one of the rare-ish cases where the male lead is which voice type? Typically, the male lead is the hero, but this story doesn't seem to have one. Hmm. Rare cases where the male lead is which voice type? I think usually 
The male lead is a tenor, so I'm going to say bass. Ooh, sorry, it's a baritone. Ah, I thought about baritone. Uh, yeah, all right. very, very rarely is the male lead a bass. I, th- yeah. I can only think of one example. Ooh, what's the example? Uh, I want to say Boris Gudinov. Mm. Uh, but even that I might be wrong about. Uh, baritones are usually... Uh, reserved for kind of the second role or the assistant mm-hmm. or sometimes the comic relief to the to the hero. Um, yeah, that makes sense. But in this story, both Rigoletto and the Duke are not really heroes. Uh, mm-hmm. And the Duke is the tenor. Uh, okay, question three. At the point where this composer left off writing the finale of his unfinished opera Turandot, Toscanini is quoted to say, Here, death triumphed over art, and then left the opera pit, and the lights went up, with the audience leaving in silence. Who was the composer? Hmm. Um, I don't know if this is correct, but the name that's coming to mind is Puccini. That is correct. Yay! Okay. Yeah, um... There has been more than one uh, operatic setting of that story, uh, but Puccini's is easily the the more uh, famous and the more successful of them. Uh, mm-hmm. Also has my favorite aria of all time, Nessun Dorma. Uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, when Toscanini performed it at La Scala, uh, he got to the point where Puccini left off and then they just stopped. Wow. They did not... They didn't have anyone finish it. Mm-hmm. Oof, that would have been powerful. I don't know. All yeah. right. So you got that. You're up to 20 points. Question four. The Italian unification movement in the 1840s and 50s saw Victor Emmanuel as the rightful king of Italy. At the time, he was king of the Piedmont. What does Piedmont translate to in English? Oh, it's the foot of the mountain. Right. Exactly. Foot foot of mountain or foothills. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You got it. Uh, 20 points. 30 points because you got your 10 extra. All right. Uh, Another Italian, I guess, geography question. Uh, Question five. Milan is part of what Italian region? It got its name well before the Packers were victorious in Super Bowl one. Hmm. Italian region, and then something to do with the Packers. Is it something to do with cheese? I don't think I know of a region that has like a cheese name. Or is it a Super Bowl name? Or is it a cheese name? I'm so, I'm very stumped. Uh, the cheese bowl. <laughs> the cheese bowl region of Italy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got it. No, uh, it is Lombardy. Oh, okay. Ah, uh, yes. That's a football name I recognize. <laughs> uh, cheese bowl. <laughs> uh, anyway. Um, okay, well, you- it's better to say something than nothing. That's okay? true. <laughs> Better to say something than nothing. Yes. Especially on a podcast, which is a purely audio medium. Uh, (laughs) All right. Uh, Well, you have 30 points. That's not bad. 
going into the final. Could be worse. Uh, And the category for the final is things I should have known. Hmm. I'll go all in. Why not? Okay. (laughs) Probably a good choice. Um, So your final uh, might be kind of a softball, but here you go. The first American to conduct at La Scala was who? I should have remembered this, but couldn't, which cost me yet another potential category sweep. Was it Bernstein? It was Bernstein. (laughs) That's correct. Yes. It's one of your academic interests. It is indeed. Uh, Yes. Yeah. That's also in that Bernstein category. That is the clue Mm -hmm. that I did not bring in for because I couldn't Mm -hmm. remember La Scala, which is also kind of why I wanted to talk to talk about it today. Be like, I will never forget this again. Ever. Because <laughs> there's nothing like the shame of national television mm-hmm. to motivate you. Well, hey. Yeah. You got 60 points. But hey. Yeah. And we all learned about La Scala. So win, win. Win, win, win. Because it gave mm-hmm. me something to talk about. All yeah. right. Well, congratulations, Emily. Uh, you, I think... Over the last couple of months, I think you are resoundingly uh, beating me in terms of quiz performance. Also, Trivial Pursuit performance. (laughs) So, there you go. Well, you won a Jeopardy, so you'll always have that. Fair. True. (laughs) Thanks for a great deep dive in quiz. And uh, for talking Jeopardy with me, as always. Of course. Of course. And thank you, listeners, for listening. Uh, thanks for sticking with us, with us through the hiatus. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed the Trivial Pursuit episodes. I got some feedback that was that it was a, a nice kind of change of pace. So hopefully you all felt that way. You can help us out by subscribing and giving us ratings or reviews on the uh, app of your choice. You can check out our Patreon. It's Potent Potables. Or if, like we said before... If you got to choose where your money goes, look for a way to help out your community. Regardless of financial means, you can help us out by telling your friends about us. And you all can find us on the social media. We're on Facebook at Potent Potables. We're on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com. And you can find our website at potentpod.com. So we'll be back with you next week uh, to talk about a week of Celebrity Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker.